0: Take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines, they're open. 1-855-450-NOAH. It's one 450 6624 You can email us live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah July. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this hour. So there's a huge survey done about firmware and what the study found was that there has essentially been no security increases or security gains in the last 15 years. Quote, A survey of more than 6,000 firmware images spanning over a decade finds no improvement in firmware security and lacks security standards for the software running on devices by Linksys, Netgear, and other major vendors. From the Netgear site, Netgear constantly monitors for both known and unknown threats. Being proactive rather than reactive to emerging security issues is a fundamental product support at Netgear. Asus also has something similar, they say, on their site from Asus. We take care to ensure that Asus products are secure in order to protect the privacy of our valued customers. We constantly strive to improve our safeguards for security and personal information in accordance with all applicable laws and regulations. Now, here's the thing. Those are great things to say. And if you're in the market for a router or you're in the market for a switch or you're in the market for any device, you want that device to be kept up to date and you want that device to be secure. That's the kind of stance that you want the company that you want to buy the device from to take. The problem is none of it has any value. All of this is, it's, it's made up. It's just marketing spiel. It's like 5G, right? It's, the, it's, it's some sort of marketing language, and they write what they know you want to read or what you want to hear on the side of a box or on the side of a product brochure or on a website. They did an, extent, an extensive study on thousands of firmware devices, and every one of them says that there is no truth behind these statements that these companies are making. And chat room has it right. DOS geek in the chat room. Corporate buzzword bingo. There is some marketing guy at Netgear and at Linksys and at Ace. I'm not picking on any one brand. This can apply to anybody. Take whatever brand of router you have in your house or whatever brand of smart light or smart device or whatever it is you have. And apply to what I'm saying to the brand that you have. There is some marketing guy sitting in some meeting room, some board table. And he's saying to himself, I was told by my boss to find what we are supposed to put on the side of this box and what things are. okay. what are important to our consumers? And so they do everything from Facebook research to targeted marketing campaigns, to sending out surveys, to interviewing people, to. Trying to take feedback that they've gotten from customers and incorporate that. And the marketing department has access to all of that information. They take all that information, they process it, and eventually what they come out with is a formula. Okay, these are the things that our customers care about. So now they take it over to the engineers. Hey, engineers, people care about privacy. People care about updated firmware. People don't want their naked pictures winding up on the internet. Is that something that we can do here? Engineers look at it and they go, okay, here are the things that we would do. Here are all the security steps that you would take to protect all this information. But now some product specialist is looking at it and going, wait, self-signed SSL. Could you explain this to me? Yeah, it's a certificate that ensures that you're communicating with the same device over and over again. Yeah, Uh, that whole let's encrypt thing where it has to have that thing to automatically renew and and that people don't really care about that. They log into they're just going to use the default username and password on the router anyway. And so uh, what difference does it make if they're connected to the device and they know it's no, you don't understand. If we don't have the security model in place, yes, it's going to provide a small amount of inconvenience, but the trade-off for that inconvenience, you only have to set it up once, and then the user's protected forever. Yeah, I'm not sure about that. I don't think our users really care uh, that much. I mean, we care about privacy, so uh, is it opening a Samba share across the internet? No. OK, so it's private then. Kind of. Yeah. OK, great. Awesome. Yeah. So uh, we're not going to go ahead and do that. That's too expensive. And it's going to irritate our users because that's that's an inconvenience to start having all these security practices. Uh, wait, would you say VPN? You want a VPN into people? Yeah, we can't be having that. Yeah, we'll just sync it up to the cloud and it'll come down. Yeah, I'm not sure that's really that's it doesn't matter. Uh, So the marketing person is then stuck in this weird position, right? They have identified what it is their users want, and people are pretty vocal about it. I've never met anybody that has told me, yeah, you know what? I uh, I was researching routers, and I was looking for them, and the one thing I didn't care about was firmware secure. It just doesn't matter to me. It's not that important. I mean, I don't, know what's, I don't have any important stuff. I don't care if it gets hacked, right? Everybody I talk to about routers asks about security. Every client for the last 15 years that we've had at speed Technologies, the first question, they can know nothing about computers or network technology, and we sit down for a consultation. The first question they ask, how secure is your… Um, networking stuff, does that protect us from attackers and threats and malware and stuff like that? Literally the first people ask, the question people ask, people care. You care. What you have to understand is these companies don't. They care about the bottom line. They want you to buy their product. So the marketing person writes what they have to write on the side of the package inside of the marketing brochure, right on the website, to get you to buy the product. And in Asus' case, in a Netgear's case, that's assuring you that they take notice. Notice these statements, right? We take every care to ensure that ASUS products are secure in order to protect the privacy of our valued customers. We strive to improve safeguards and they've said nothing. They've said nothing, nothing in here. Can you hold them accountable for? They're not saying that they're going to release firmware. Here's, here would be an accountable statement. We take security seriously. So every 30 days. We release a new piece of firmware for your device because that's about how uh, on you should. We should be doing it every week. That really is the best compromise. Patch Tuesday, those kinds of things. We really should release security updates every week, but that might be a lot. So we'll do it monthly or we'll do it every six months or every year, whatever it is. Right. At least then we would have something concrete to look at and go, okay. I want more security than that. I want updates to come more frequently or we could look at it and say, I'm not going to be bothered to update my router every month. So that's a waste of time, but they don't give us anything like that. There's nothing here to hold them accountable for. Going back to Netgear, we're constantly monitoring for both known and unknown threats. Let me ask you something. How do you monitor for an unknown threat? Outline the process for me of what the people at Netgear are doing to outline a process for detecting unknown threats. What does that even mean? I'll tell you what it means. It means that some guy... In an engineer place is, is banging away on it occasionally clicks on a couple different things and sees if you know, if there's so it's not like they're auditing this and they're not opening up. If you think by that statement, what they're doing is they're sitting down and, and, and booting into into Cali and attacking these devices and going, yeah, we could get in this way. We got to patch that. Oh, we can not get in this way. So we don't have to. they're not doing that. It's ridiculous. And so this study of thousands of firmware devices confirms what I think a lot of us have already known, and that's that the security of these devices is terrible. Furthermore, it hasn't improved in the last 15 years. Think about that. Think about the changes technologically that we have undergone in the last 15 years. Think about the new attack vectors that exist in the last 15 years alone. There was a time, 15 years ago, we didn't have solid internet. 15 years ago, I, didn't, I was at a place where there was no expectation that Internet was going to be everywhere I went. Right. Fifteen years ago, there was no such thing as public Wi-Fi and the places that did have it. It was usually some place that had Wi-Fi for some other reason, and then they were incorporating it and would let you get access to it. But we certainly did not walk around 15 years ago with this expectation that we were constantly connected to everything, partly because the speed of the Internet wasn't fast enough for us constantly to access data that way. Fifteen years ago, there was no such thing as a Chromebook that didn't have any local data on it. and Everything was synced up to the cloud. Fifteen years ago, we didn't have iCloud syncing and backing up everything off of your phone. So the idea that we would not make any significant security advances in firmware in 15 years should tell you exactly how big of a problem that this is. Quote, this is from Sarah Zatko, the chief scientist at the cyber independent testing or CIDL, the place that did this. Uh, massive review. Nobody is trying, said Sarah Zatko, chief engineer at Cyber Independent Testing Lab, abbreviated as CIDL, a nonprofit organization that conducts independent tests of security software. We found no consistency in vendor or product line doing better or showing improvement. There is no evidence that anybody is making a concerted effort to address the safety and hygiene of their product, she said. Now, let me let me correct Sarah right there. She may have not found it because she's not looking in the right places. Because maybe Linksys and maybe Netgear don't care about security, but let me tell you who does. The fine folks making PFSense. The fine folks making Nextcloud. The fine folks making uh, C-File. The fine folks making FreeNAS. Those open source projects, yeah, the marketing guy can't solve those problems because he, you know... I've just gone through why that is never going to come to fruition but when it comes to an open source project you know what the great thing about the open source project is that one guy that really really annoying guy that always is right at the meeting or making the forum post or in the IRC or wherever it is saying hey we we, that's great we can't do that because there's a security problem here and here's the reasons why and then we find a compromise in between but guess what. That information is out in the public, and everybody then becomes aware, hey, here's a security problem, so let's make a button. You can choose to be more secure. You choose to be less secure. When you download FreeNAS out of the box, it's a pretty good system. Like, there's really not a lot of security challenges that you have to fight through. If you want to introduce more security, you can. Let's take encryption, for example. Encryption is something that is supported on ZFS natively, and so you can incorporate that into your FreeNAS box. Now, the question becomes, why would you want to do that? Does it actually improve the security of your device or does it not? Let's think about it. If the key resides on the same device as the server when the server boots up, that means that everything you need to decrypt the hard drive exists on one box. And that fundamentally is a massive security problem. Let's take it one step further. The vast majority of the time... A network-attached storage is running by the very definition of it being network-attached storage. Therefore, the security key or the encryption key, decryption key, is loaded inside of memory and the unencrypted data exists out in the open. It's being served up by an NFS share or a Samba share. So the value that you're adding by introducing encryption is very, very little. When the NAS is powered off, nobody can get to the data. That's base and oh, oh, oh. by the way, if you want the data to if you want the NAS to be able to boot up on its own, then you have to store the encryption key and you have to store the passphrase used to unlock the encryption key on the device, which means that if somebody had physical access to the machine, they could get access to the data. So let's take that a step back. If you're willing to to use a key. Someplace else. If you're willing to use a key someplace else, then you have the opportunity Oh, you know why? Uh, the chat room is saying that I'm muted in Mumble. The reason is that somebody else muted me. I apologize for that. It's back on now. It actually goes one step further because the proper way to use encryption is to keep the key and the passphrase off the box, which means every time you start your NAS, you're going to have to walk down to a console and enter in a password to decrypt the data. And then that data is going to be running unencrypted on a, on a network. So you've really not gained a whole lot, right? It prevents the threat vector of Two things, really. If the NASA's is powered off and somebody were to steal it, you would your data would be fine. Again, assuming you kept the key and the passphrase separated. And if you wanted to dispose of the drives, you can pull the drive out of the machine and uh, you could just throw it away because they wouldn't have the key to decrypt it. So you don't have to worry about wiping the drives. So those are the two minor increases in security that you get for a massive, massive headache of inconvenience because let's be clear anytime you in, like ZFS and the entire way that the, the file system works is, is, In fact, really, the entire structure of a NAS is just not designed to be private. It's designed to trust the physical location that the server resides in, and it's designed to trust the users that exist within the network. And so if you take that approach, encryption on a NAS doesn't make any sense. But the feature is there. Why is the feature there? Because you as the user have asked for it. It matters to somebody. It's inapplicable for 98% of us because it's kind of a stupid uh, model. But if you want to go down that stupid model because you want that little bit of extra security with a lot of extra inconvenience, you have the ability to do that with a free and open source product. You don't have the freedom to do that with a Netgear router or an Asus router or any of these other smart devices that are shipped from a factory that have their function in mind. If you'd like to join us in the mumble room, you're welcome to do that. Add your voice to the conversation. We'd also ask that you join us in our interactive chat room. Ask Noah show on FreeNode. that way. You can flag me, and we can we can patch you up and and bring you into the show. Again, as always, you can call us eight fifty five four fifty. No, we'd love to have you that way. So here's why this is of note. If you think I'm crazy for this is going to be the fifth week or fourth week going on, maybe third week, uh, something like that. It's been a number of weeks that I have been concentrated on personal data and privacy. If you think about it, really, it's been a fundamental building block of this show since day one. And here and 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 the reason for that is because it is so important to users and it's so important for the technology systems that we use that I think it's important to constantly keep an eye and constantly keep our finger on the pulse of these, of these studies that are coming out and taking that data and doing something with it to improve our trust in technology. If you ever wonder why I don't trust Google with when they tell me my data is secure and private and it's not going to just turn off the sync thing. Do you have any idea how many times I've had a conversation with somebody that I go, I just don't put private stuff on my phone. Why? I don't trust Android. Well, it's just uh, Android supports full device encryption now. Do they? Do they support full device encryption now? Does Apple support full device encryption? Now, let me ask you something. Where's the private key for that stored? Ah, oh, it's, uh, it's uh, stored on the device there and you unlock it with the, you know, you can use a pin to unlock the private key and then it decrypts your data. Okay. Does Apple trust the signature, the the signed signature of Apple Incorporated? Yes. So theoretically, Apple could push firmware down that would override, they would just give them a master unlock code, zero zero, 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 and you could push that firmware code into a phone and the phone would install it because the phone automatically trusts updates from Apple. Yeah? Okay, my data isn't secure. It's only secure because Apple chooses not to look inside of my device. And the same is true with Google, right? Actual encryption. Actual protection from these companies and from other threats are what I'm talking about. I don't trust these companies. I don't trust Linksys. I don't trust Asus. I don't even trust Ubiquity. They're in here too. But if you ever wonder why I spend so much time, so much money, and so much thought into personal privacy and data, this is why. Because I don't believe that these companies aren't interested in your data. I believe that it's just, for the time being, it's, not, it's, it's more harmful to them To invade your privacy than to let you keep it. So for now, they're going to keep it. But make no mistake, all of these things that you trust, all of these SMITE devices that you think are keeping you private and secure, they're not. They're only secure by choice because the companies who made them have chosen not to invade your privacy. It's not that they can't. Does it make me a little tinfoil hat? Yeah, sure. But is it justified? Absolutely. Quote. The CITL study surveyed firmware from 18 vendors, including Asus, D-Link, Linksys, Netgear, Ubiquiti, and others. In all, more than 6,000 firmware versions were analyzed, totaling close to 3 million binaries created from 2003 to 2018. Now, this is the first longitudinal study of IoT software for safety. CITL researchers studied publicly available firmware images and evaluated them for the presence of standard security features such as the use of, of non-executable stacks, address space layout randomization, also abbreviated ASLR, and stack arch, which prevent buffer overflow and attacks. The results were not encouraging. Time and time again, firmware from commonly used manufacturers failed to implement the most basic security features, even when research studied the recent, most recent versions of the firmware. For example, Firmware in the Asus RT-A755U Wi-Fi router did not employ ASLR or stack guards to protect against buffer overflow attacks, nor did it employ a non-executable stack to prevent against stack smashing, another variety of an overflow attack. Now, CITL found that the same was true of firmware for Ubiquiti. And yes, this hurts to say. Ubiquiti's UAP-AC Pro, an access point that I have recommended on this show Since the show went on the air, an access point that I have purchased more times than I care to count. We have in production more places than I care to count. I have given some away to people on the show. That's how much I like that particular access point. Guess what? (laughs) The same is true of the firmware on the UAC AC Pro. Same is true of the D-Link DWL 6600. Router firmware by vendors are only, sl- uh, it's just, it's terrible. This is terrible. Now, there were some bright sides. Almost all recent router firmware by Linksys and Netgear tested with C- by CITL boasted non-executable stacks. However, those same firmware binaries did not employ other common security features like ASLR or their stack guards. If they did, they rarely, re- if they did, they do so very rarely. Now, Nunix in the chat room says, woo, all that embedded Linux also, whatever else they use, I, 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 I disagree. I think that the security model for embedded Linux is far and away above what the vast majority of some of these companies are doing. So, for example, in, in the case of the UAPAC Pro, it runs on BusyBox. Now, I think BusyBox in and of itself makes an effort to try to provide security. The problem is they're not necessarily taking all of those changes and implementing them. I would guess that and I don't know this for a fact. I would guess that there is a best practice involved. And a lot of these companies are not following the best practices. So here's where I get to with all of this. What I arrive to is before you go about the process of bringing data online, while you're still trying to figure things out, you better make sure that you understand at a very deep level how to properly bring this the data online without without compromising Your security. And if you don't understand how to protect your data, then you're better off keeping it offline until you do learn how to protect it or you're going to wind up on the next security iCloud leak. Right, because that is if you think about it, that's kind of worst case scenario, your data gets leaked and somebody else gets access to it. Now, when we talk about data leaking, oftentimes we talk about credit cards and bank information and stuff like that. And the reason that we talk about those things is because, frankly, when you start to look at the method of attacks and the motivation behind attackers, it's typically financial. Unsurprisingly, people don't have a lot of interest in digging through people's dirty photos. They're more interested in bank account details and credit cards. Why? Because you can you can find dirty photos anywhere on the Internet. Bank account details translate to money, and that's harder to get. So. The motivation tends to be things that are financially profitable, otherwise people don't care. Nobody's going to bother to crack your encryption on your private photos. They just care about uh, your um, your your banking details. For me, it's like it's it's 100 percent the opposite. I could care less if you get my bank account details. A, money can be replaced. B, my bank has zero fraud liability, so I'm not responsible for it. It's not my problem. Go ahead and steal my debit card number. I call my bank. Actually, I don't have to call my bank. I log on to their site. I click on fraud. I click on my account. All the money's back in my account. They send me a new card. My day goes on. You go You go to jail. I could care less, right? doesn't bother me at all. What I do care about, I do care about, uh, you know, my ability to Trust technology and to be able to put thoughts and ideas and plans and stuff like that down and trust that they're not going to get leaked onto the Internet because it would provide a certain level of embarrassment. Right. That ability to trust the technology to be safe and secure is absolutely essential, particularly for people like me that really rely on technology. Now, Nunix in the chat room asks a very interesting question. He says define trust, define safe, define secure. You're using a lot of words that don't necessarily have agreed upon meetings. And he's absolutely right. We, as people who use technology, have all sorts of different levels of trust. We have all sorts of different levels of secure. We have all sorts of different levels of safe. And so the way that you have to approach data privacy must be layered, right? Certain things don't have to be online. And if they don't have to be online, take them offline. Here's the counter side to that. If you wouldn't use it if the data is offline, I can have the best journal app in the world and it's completely secure and encrypted and the keys are stored in a different place and I've tied it to the YubiKey so I've got two factor. I mean, you can do all of that stuff. But if it's a 15-minute process to bring out your journal, by the time you get done with that process, you've forgotten whatever it was you were going to write to begin with. So it's not a, it's not a, it's not a, it's not a useful method for securing your, your data. So you have to be able to find a, 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 an even approach, something that is both usable and as secure as possible, and all data doesn't necessarily fit into the same category. There are some data that you want to bring offline and keep it offline and keep it safe and secure, completely encrypted. Every data practice that we can that we can do to keep that data that data safe and secure should be implemented. Then there's other pieces of data that we have to have access to. I, for example, have a running uh, a running log of my life, and I came across that because essentially. Th- If I troubleshoot systems by looking through logs and seeing what the machine should have done, and then I can go back and look at what the machine actually did, and then I can figure out where the disconnect is and fix it, can I apply that same principle to my life to make things more organized and efficient? Can I apply that same principle to my business to make it run more efficiently? Can I apply that same principle to a show to make the show run more efficiently? And the answer to those questions are yes, but they rely on a certain level of trust on the technology. Now, to Nunix's question. Do I do I is is the level of trust that I need to do a, a, a podcast or a, or a radio show is that the same level of trust that I need to write um, meaningful letters to my wife? No, absolutely not. I don't care if the show notes get leaked because guess what? I'm publishing them on Tuesday anyway. I do care if a private intimate letter to my wife gets leaked because it was never designed to be published. It was designed for her to read it. That's what I mean by layered trust. That's what I mean by layered security. And that's what I mean by understanding that your data is safe. And that led me to a really great app this week that I want to talk about called Laverna. L A V E R N A. Laverna.cc. And Laverna.cc is a self hosted journal app that values encryption by default. Now, the nice thing about Laverna is you can run it locally on a machine or you can choose to self host it inside of a VM inside of your network and you can access it through a web UI. Now, the nice thing about that is. You have access to it from every machine on site of your local network, so you, it's not that big of a risk that something is going to get leaked. Obviously, there, it's not that there aren't attack vectors, so it's a little less safe than storing something completely offline, but the convenience of being able to get to that self-hosted uh, journal app anywhere is very, very, very beneficial, at least I found it to be very f- beneficial. So what's interesting and so Kabavik says setting up a log of your life and then parsing that log that sounds like a lot of work, you know, you would think so. But one of the things that I've been able to do is utilize KDE to help me do some of this. uh, it started with a investigation into into a movement called the quantified self, and that is basically tracking oneself with technology and surrounding users of making technology tracking tools. So it's kind of like where you have a a Fitbit or you have your Apple Watch that's tracking your health. Those are metrics and those are data points, and we can collect those data points and we can we can consolidate them into one place and then. Use of various scripts and, and various processing tools to extract useful information out of those data and numbers and statistics and the study of them are one of the best predictors of the future that we as humankind have. And it's literally like a crystal ball, if you think about it, because as geeks, we have prime access to the crystal ball. We have prime access to the data. We understand we are literally the people that build these infrastructures and keep them running for other people. So we are probably better suited than anybody else in the world to restructure some of these things to help us improve our lives. And the quantified self the quantified self movement or the quantified self idea or ideology practices this idea of life logging or creating a log of, of what you're doing and other trends that incorporate technology and data acquisition into data, into regular daily life. And the reason I think that most of us don't do this again it sounds like it would be time-consuming, but frankly, it's not. And I've been doing this for the last, I don't know, maybe week, maybe two weeks. I've actually, if you think about it, I've been doing it my whole life. I just never realized... Uh, that it was this structured life logging for me prior was I had telegram and I had various different groups and anybody that's been around me for more than a couple of hours, you know, has made fun of it. Oh, yeah. Every time you tell him something, it's in a telegram group. If I start a project, he creates a telegram group for it. why it's my way of organizing things. It's my way of bringing people into a box and then we do whatever we want in the box, but everything stays in the box. And so ask Noah exists inside of a box. And all to speed exists inside of a box and my personal life exists inside of a box. And I can jump in any one of those boxes and all of the resources and materials and things that I need are in that box. And so like when we launched Ask Noah, I needed a certain, I needed the show intro. I needed the background. I needed certain access to certain files and I created those all inside of a Telegram group. Why? Because I knew I was going to need access to all of those resources. The problem becomes when you don't tr- trust the underlying technology that that online connected IOT cloud sinking self that basically everybody else is doing right now that is taking over like wildfire where nobody pays attention to their photo collections because they're being backed up by iCloud. Those are the kinds of those are the kinds of of things that we need to pay attention to that we don't trust those things. You don't have any trust. Nobody out there has any trust that Apple has any vested interest in making sure that your family photos are preserved in the unlikely event of your death right? There is, same with Google, or same with any cloud service, nobody is is invested with the fact that these are very personal things, and I think that's problematic, and software like Laverna fixes that, because it moves the onus on you. You have control over that data, you have control over where it goes, you have control over how secure it is, and you have control over how accessible it is, and that is, I think, is really, really cool. The reason more of us don't do this is because we don't necessarily trust the technology, and almost everything we do Generates data: the time that you get up in the morning, the time that you go to bed at night, the time that you eat, what you eat, where you go, how you spend your time. Everybody, I when I when I talk to people and uh, over dinner and stuff like that, and, and we have conversations and, and we start to connect on a personal level. One of the things people ask me is, "How do you manage your time?" It always seems like you're so busy. How do you how do you manage your time? And anybody that's ever worked with me on a project or anything like this, they they'll tell you. When he's around, it's great. Like we go back and forth, we can have conversations and then all of a sudden it's like a brick wall, just boom, he falls off the face of the planet and I just don't hear from him. And that—that and that just, it seems very strange to people. And what that is, is my natural chime uh, prioritization. I'm gonna have dinner with my family at six o'clock. I'm gonna value my kids, I'm gonna value my wife, I'm gonna value the conversation that's there. And I need to be present for that. And so I need to cut out all of the other distractions. And the problem with our interconnected IoT life is, It incorporates those distractions into our daily living. So Telegram continues to send messages and text messages continue to send messages, and people continue to call and and phone call. I get phone calls about things I couldn't possibly care less about and something that could have easily been sent in a Telegram or an email or something else. And yet people feel the need to contact me on the phone, interrupt whatever it is I'm doing, oftentimes with the family or something like that, to express something completely inappropriate. Hey, you're never going to believe what I saw today or I had this random thought. I don't care about your random thought, right? So that's my semi-polite way of telling you I'm busy and I don't want to talk to you right now. And yeah, it can be very frustrating for people that have to work with me, but that is the only way I can do six or seven or eight different things and not have my entire life implode. Finding a way to store this data, finding a way to access it quickly, finding a way to prioritize this data and to understand all of this. That's what I was talking about four weeks ago or three weeks ago, whenever it is, I did an episode and I said, it's going to take me a while to unpack all of this. This is what I'm talking about. I'm trying to figure a lot of of these things out, and what I found is Linux and open source are the only tools that are capable of doing this. Only tools capable of doing this. Managing data streams that work effectively is a very complicated task, but it's not necessarily time-consuming if you use the right tools. I have never really loved a desktop environment before. I've never... like. Probably Unity was the closest I ever came to really loving a desktop environment. And it was, I thought it was a really fantastic desktop environment because Canonical took up all of the little edges, all of the little polish that was there, Canonical got right. And I, that appealed to me as a desktop environment, but there were still problems with it. And what I found is I have never been as happy on a, on a piece of technology as I am on KDE. Rakai refers to me as the Walmart of Linux users, and the reason he says that, and he's absolutely right, the reason he says that is because I always look for the lowest common denominator. If an application or a thing doesn't exist across all the Linuxes, I don't want to use it because I'm afraid I'll get stuck, and then I'll never be able to leave that particular distro or that particular desktop environment. And what I found is when it comes to KDE Plasma, there are certain tools that I can no longer live without. Because they're, they increase productivity and enable me to multitask more efficiently. There is no such thing as true multitasking. It's just how many times can or how efficiently can you unitask over a period of time. So what I've started is I've started using the KDE activities and what activities allow me to do is separate out what different parts of my life. I wake up in the morning and I have I'm a parent. I have to deal with parenting things I have to take my kids to school or have to fill up their lunch money or do all those things. So I have an activity for parenting and all of the stuff that i'm working on on parenting notes and research articles and tasks i'm doing and web browsers and all of those things exist on the parenting activity and that works really really great for me then i after the kids are done they're at school for the day now i need to go to work and so i have an speed activities and that has all of the applications i use for work it has my current project list up it has my ticketing system up it has my email up all of the things that i need for doing work exists inside of the work activity and what's great about that is when i get to work in the morning with my single laptop inside of a dock at my desk, I have access to all of the exact same resources that I had access to yesterday. Exactly how I left my computer when I left for the office the other day, it seems like I'm coming, with, I'm coming back to that. Just the great thing is with a keyboard shortcut, anywhere in the world, I can access that particular computer or that particular instance or workspace because it's virtual and it exists on my laptop. I also have a personal and recreational uh, activity And that's, you know, I have all the messaging stuff with my wife and I have uh, various different things that we do as a family and family planning and 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 budgeting and home management and all of those kinds of things exist in that activity. And the great thing about that is when I'm at work, I never have that awkward moment now where I accidentally left my family budget up and somebody else remoted into my laptop to do something for a client. And now all that's it, there's a weird conversation. Oh, that's personal. That's work. That's personal. Use this window. Not that one. I have to worry about any of that because they're all in different activities. And Katie, it allows me to restrict certain applications or certain things to certain activities, which I found to be remarkably useful. And then I have a guest activity, which is somebody says, hey, can I browse the Internet? I don't need you closing my windows, closing my tabs, rearranging the way that I set up my computer. I need it all to stay consistent. And so having a guest activity, I hit one button, have my laptop, knock yourself out, do anything you want with it. Right. Then you layer virtual desktops on. And that gives me even further granular control. So inside of AltaSpeed, for example, I do a lot of different things. Sometimes I'm managing servers, and so I need a bunch of different consoles up. And so I need a terminal room, basically, where I have a room full of terminals. And I need another room where I am uh, moving files around and or using a web browser and just just general task stuff. And then I need another uh, workspace where I have all of my remote connections so I can remote into control a computer. I can remote into a server. I can remote into this or remote into that, something that lets me connect to the outside world. And so the virtual desktops allow me to define each one of those spaces. And the great thing about that is wherever I leave off with the given activity, I can pick it up the very next time I sit back down thanks to the Katie productivity tools. Now, to Kabavik's point in the chat room, life logging seems like it takes a lot. would take a lot of time. It doesn't when you can pin an application like Kate to a specific part of your activity, and it just follows you around no matter what virtual desktop you're on. It's always at the far right-hand side. So every time I have to think about something or remember something, or I've learned something that I I need to make sure to make a note of, that goes into the log on the right-hand side. And because I rarely don't reference things More than a couple of days out, like I might get to a point where I look back and say, hey, you know what I really need? I I had an IP address from that server the other day. Well, I go back and look in the log and it's there rarely, if ever, am I ever going to have to do that more than four or five days out, right? After two, three days, after that project is no longer in quote-unquote active status, all of that information has to get taken out of the log and put into the appropriate place, right? In, in the case of AltaSpeed, that would be our knowledge base or our ticket system so that the next technician that goes to work has those IP addresses, has those passwords, those kinds of things, right? So all of that is stored in the appropriate place. But as a quick dumping ground, I'm never going to take the time to open up a web browser, log into the ticket system, log into the knowledge base, open up that client, create a little thing, document what that's never going to happen, but I can paste an IP address over in my log and mark the time and date that I took it. So I know what it goes to and what job I'm on, right? That is what I'm talking about, about increasing productivity and increasing your ability and using Linux and tools that exist within Linux to make you a more productive at whatever it is you're doing. Because what I found is it applies to personal life. It applies to work. It applies to show prep. It applies to everything, making this stuff more usable and approachable. And so it's going to be a focus. It's going to be a focus for the show. It's going to be a focus for me. And uh, if you'd like to go down this journey with me, I'd invite you to do so. And if you don't, we'll have other stuff in the show. But this is one of those things that I have finally stumbled onto something where I look and I'm like, Windows is not capable of this. Mac OS is not capable of this. Like there aren't. It doesn't have the, the kind of granular control that KDE has. And I, I would say the same thing about GNOME. I would say the same thing about XFCE. I would say the same thing about tiling desktop managers. Nothing quite has the modularity and the organization and the tweaking and the levers and the knobs that KDE has. And so I've really just I've fallen in love to the point that I don't think I will ever leave KDE after this point, which is kind of crazy and kind of fun. The Pinebook Pro has been released, or is about to be released. Uh, they're taking pre-orders, uh, they are going to, pre-orders are ending on the, ended on the 24th, excuse me, and public pre-orders start on the 25th, so that was two days ago. So, from their site, hi all, just a quick reminder that the Community Pinebook uh, Pro pre-orders with the 128 gig eMMC upgrade finished tomorrow. Starting the 25th, public pre-orders will begin, which means that everybody will be able to place a, in a pre-order. Mind you, we expect the production batch to sell out quickly, but another batch is being scheduled from early to mid-September, so don't worry. Now, all Pinebook Pro units pre-ordered after August 24th will ship in the default eMMC configuration, regardless if you registered on the form prior to July first, 2019 or not. Now, I tend to always buy used computers. And the reason is because they're inexpensive, they depreciate quickly, and they're usually cheap yet powerful enough to continue to be very useful. And so when I need a computer for a dedicated task like, you know, I need one for the ASNOA studio. And so I buy a laptop and this is just gonna be the one that lives in the studio. Typically that's a used computer off of eBay. The bad news is those computers typically have outdated tech, right? Typically has a spinning rust hard drive, typically doesn't have type C charging, typically doesn't have a high resolution display, typically has low memory, typically has a bad battery because it's either lived inside of a dock its whole life or been abused by its previous owner. And so those things have really put me off. And the problem is you can't buy a good $200 laptop right now. If you go to Best Buy or you go on Amazon and you order whatever the Chromebook or Windows light computer is, what you'll find is it's a really crappy piece of uh, hardware that's really more of an exercise in frustration than a technological purchase. And so they're useless and they're junk. And I always recommend people don't buy them unless you're just looking for a toy to play with. But it's really not a pro. It's not a it's not a useful productivity tool. The Pinebook Pro, to me, changes all of that because I have played with the original Pinebook, and the original Pinebook is absolutely a good, solid product. It really feels like a a solid, sellable product that anybody can use, and the Pinebook Pro improves on that. And they do a lot of little things that might not stand out to people as being hugely beneficial. For example, the 5-volt DC power. That means that... It, it, for those of you that don't know, most laptops function on 21 volts, anywhere from 19 volts DC to 21 volts DC. The problem is, without going into a lot of electrical theory, volts times amps equal watts. And so to get more power output for a given computer at a higher voltage means you can get away with less amps and get the same power output of, of a given power supply. The problem with doing that is it's very difficult for your car, for example, to provide 24 volts DC because you have to have all sorts of converters and stuff like that. It's much easier to step down the voltage and let the device charge over a slower period of time. That is to say you have lower amperage. So the, the, the this 5-volt DC power means that you literally anywhere and anything can be your computer's power source. Charge it in the car. Charge it on a battery bank. Go to a battery store and buy one of those little batteries that they use for either security systems or the little emergency lights. I did that with my – this was with the ThinkPad actually, and I got like 25 hours out of that thing. Now, you're essentially carrying a car battery around, but if you absolutely have to have power for your laptop and you don't want to deal with all sorts of inverters and converters and contraptions and contusions and cables and all of those kinds of things – Eight, just going buying a, you know, a $50 battery is not a bad way to go, and I've, I've used that technique a lot. The Pinebook Pro makes that even more approachable because you could quite literally run this thing off of enough double A's. I mean, they'd run out fast, but you could run them off of double A's if you wanted to. The Pinebook Pro, you also have the ability to run an NVMe SSD. Every laptop I buy, you can buy a $200 laptop. I buy the 430S off of eBay all the time. If anybody's looking for a cheap, inexpensive, daily driver laptop that I would trade my brand new X1 Carbon and use it Almost like there'd be a couple of things I'd miss, but for the most part, I could get by all day long on a 430 S. And the only thing I have to do to that thing to make it usable is max it out with RAM and put an SSD in it. And it becomes a completely usable computer in 2019. Using my laptop in an entirely different way and falling in love with KDE has been awesome. And what what I've realized is I have a whole new found appreciation for Linux because, again, this stuff is just not possible with other operating systems. And what the Pinebook Pro allows me to do is buy a brand-new, inexpensive computer that has enough power to get basic tasks done, but I get a brand-new battery, I get a high-resolution display, I get Type-C charging, I get the ability to tie into a Type-C dock. All of those things are available with the Pinebook Pro. And so I think this is a very revolutionary product and something that has not been given enough attention by the Linux community at large. I think we, at large part, look at these things like toys. We look at it like a Raspberry Pi. And while I'm not one of those people that thinks that thinner is better, I would prefer a laptop with a big battery, a wired Ethernet jack. Frankly, if I'm being honest with you, I'd really like to get back to a com port because there's still a lot of technology that uses it and we don't have it. Uh I would like all of those things to be built into the laptop. I'd like to have a laptop that has everything with me, but is still light enough to take with me to travel on a plane or drive in a car or carry around in a backpack 24 hours a day because that's what I do with my laptop. Right. The Pinebook Pro fills a needed gap because it doesn't have all the bells and whistles that a normal laptop does. It's also much, 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 much thinner. And so for things like a life log and being able to jot things down all the time and have access to a computer 24-7 and have good battery life and have the ability to run off of a solar panel because you can do that with a 5-volt laptop and it's much more difficult to do that with a 19-volt laptop, right? Not significantly, but a little bit. You have the ability to do those things with the Pinebook Pro, and so it adds a, it's a very nice companion laptop would be the best way I can describe it. App Image has some new uh proposed ideas and so this is a app image ux redesign and so the fundamental question comes down to this the traditional way for installing software on windows or mac os is you go out to a website you download a piece of software and you double click on it and then it runs however it runs and the fundamental question you have to ask yourself is do you believe that that is a beneficial way to obtain software or is it an insecure way to to obtain software because essentially when you're downloading something off the internet you're trusting the website to be the ultimate authority on if you trust that software is not when it comes to a package repository. Now you're trusting your distribution, you're, you're trusting your distribution package maintainer to only include software that is safe for the computer to run. So is there any value in having a gatekeeper or should it just be the wild west when you do anything? And before you answer that question, consider this, the AUR on arch is as close as we get to the Wild West. I mean, there's literally, I don't think anybody in there has ever found software. They're like, wow, well, that's not, we're not porting that to Arch. Like if there's software that is ca- physically capable of running in Linux, chances are it exists in the AUR. And because of that, I've never been a fan of AppImage because I've always thought it was kind of, it's always seemed like an afterthought to me, right? Look at how, Canonical has approached this, right? When they went for a universal installer, they were going to businesses and they were getting them into the ecosystem and the Snap store. And they, they were trying to make it easier for people to, to, to obtain apps and easier for, for developers to update apps. App image to me has always seemed like a secondhand afterthought haphazard approach. And that is not really the case. That was just my false impression of it. Uh, literally every few weeks, an app that isn't updated or doesn't work, I have been able to fix with Snaps. And uh, YouTube DL was the latest one. Just, just this last week, I wasn't able to download a video. It said the version of YouTube DL was too old. I tried updating it, you know, I, it whatever the version in the PPA or whatever, however it was I originally installed, it wasn't working. I just got sick of it, removed it, add the snap, everything works great. That's a great feature. That's really beneficial as a Linux user. And so I I I think that universal packaging is fantastic. I've just never up until now really thought that App image was a great way to go. Well, that changes this week because in a post on Reddit, uh, they're calling they're calling this the app image UX proposal, and it features a transparent system of integration. So no stall inquired, no install required. First, it runs assistance, then the application directories and application and file metadata. So this is going to be very much like the Mac platform. And don't get me wrong, I don't like Apple, but some of the way they do things make a lot of sense, and so it makes sense to model it. This file system application approach makes a lot of sense. Why is it, after I've gone through the work and trouble of proving that I own the software, so I've licensed it, I've registered it, I've entered the keys, I've done all of the things that I have to do, And I still can't just pick that app suite up as a whole and move it off the machine. If I install it on a different machine, I got to go through that whole rigmarole again. Why is that a thing? Why is it that we can't just have ultimate portable apps that just install to a machine? Then if you want to, you can pick it up, move it to a different machine. And now that exists or maybe even replicate that software and customizations to other machines. That is twice as true with open source software because there's nothing there's nothing software license wise preventing you from running it on multiple machines. And so this provides an easy mechanism to update, an easy mechanism to install, an easy mechanism to back up, an easy mechanism to transplant. All of these simple file structures where everything is a file, everything is in a folder. Interestingly enough, that's the same design philosophy that Linux goes over. Uh, and and so you'll notice that a lot of people, everything in Linux is a file or a folder. And so I, I, I'm i revisiting AppImage, and I think you should too. If you haven't checked it out, um, one of my favorite uh app images is the uh shoot I can't think of the name but it's 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 for uh you burn an image to a uh, to a flash drive and I can't think of the name something.io I'll think of it and I'll have a link in the show notes for you but uh, you should check that out and and play with app image and and watch how the the mechanisms in which they work there's a couple little things that are rough around the edges. So, for example, I installed standard notes using the app image and whatever directory that you download it in is the directory that the app is going to run in. And if you don't move it before you install it, you're just basically stuck with the application in that directory forever, unless you go through some really hacky steps to get rid of it. We, too, invite you to join the program. Again, you can call us at 855-450-NOAH or you can email us live at AskNoahShow.com. We'd love to have your participation either way. Jeremy writes in and says, Hi, Noah. I know you're asking what backup solutions... Uh, That I've used before I run an IT business in Lincoln, Nebraska, and I've managed a backup server using open source software at the moment it backs up approximately 70 computers mostly running Windows, but there are a few Linux machines in there as well. Tell mount that tell mount that rests on an NFS share. And on a free NAS box in a data center here in town. I use the software UR Backup. It provides an easy to use managed interface, downloadable agents for the client machines, readable notifications. The project is fairly mature and they don't accept donations. They instead ask that you simply purchase a Hyper-V license from them if you're not going to use it. It provides a quick image backup over the internet using compression. Uh, it, his, uh, his his uh, his website or his company is Jeremy H Net Solutions. So if you if you're in the Lincoln, Nebraska area and need somebody to check out, I would invite you to uh, to check out my friend Jeremy and and check out his business. P.S. I want to thank you for your recommendation of Vox Telesis. They're an outstanding company to work with and provide amazing customer service. Yes, they do, and we're very fortunate to have them as a sponsor of the Ask Noah Show. We thank them for their support and and thank you for 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 uh, for using them. So I, I appreciate that. If you have other backup solutions, that's kind of the next process in this whole evolution is I feel like I have a pretty good idea and I'm developing uh, uh, decent ideas on how to structure data. My next thing is I I need to wind up on a full backup solution. And right now, because I'm old school and because, as Rakai calls me, the Walmart of Linux user at the lowest common denominator, I just use rsync for everything because it works and I can trust it. And I, I know that it's going to work and I understand how that mechanism is working. But if there's something better out there, I want to know. So write to live at Let me know what your backup solutions are. I'd love to read about them. Sam H writes in and says, Hi, Noah, I've been searching for a tool where I can sync files across my laptop that is using Pop! OS with my Android phone through the LAN. I've tried sync thing. It was working just fine until the same problem. I have heard of you talking about uh, C-File. I've looked at the instructions, and I've seen different ways of doing it. It looks like the instructions are for using C-File across the Internet. Do you know of any way to correct install it so I can just connect through LAN only? Thank you, Sam. So C-File doesn't care how you access it, right? If you install C-File on a server and, and, and put it on, like, on DigitalOcean... If there's no firewall on that machine, then the machine has a publicly addressable IP address and you're able to use that machine across the internet, which, by the way, is how I use C-File and I don't think there's anything wrong with that. C-File, encrypts, C-File has its own encryption algorithm and it also utilizes HTTPS for the transport. So you have two encryption, uh, two encryption protocols going on. The founder of the project actually recommends that you make sure to be using HTTPS and I, I wouldn't go as far as to say it's because he doesn't trust his own crypto, but it's because he understands that uh, that there the, the, the work that goes into SSL is probably exceeds what he is able to do on his own. And so I trust C file security for the most part. For anything that like if it got leaked it wouldn't be the end of the world, I trust C file for stuff like that. Now in your case, I'm guessing it's a little bit more sensitive than that because you don't want it traversing the internet and the answer to that question is simple put it behind a firewall if you put if you installed c file on a server inside of your house and and you and it sits behind a firewall so there's and there's no ports forwarded to it that's not the data's not going anywhere it's just going to live inside your network now you're going to deal with the same threat vectors that you would deal with any device that's on a network that contains sensitive data so be aware of that but as far as c file not being have not, not C file won't care if it has access to the internet. And C file doesn't care if you put in 192.168.0.50 or if you use your public IP address and have the ports forwarded have it running it on on the on the public internet. But you can absolutely do that with C file and it's absolutely the solution I would implement in your case. If you want to sync files across your laptop to your phone uh, over the LAN, that's absolutely the best way to do it. And the great thing about C file is it's going to run on Linux, it's going to run on Windows, it's going to run on Android, it's going to run on Mac. It doesn't matter What device you're using, it doesn't matter what operating system you're using, you're going to be able to implement the same solution. Uh, And so, yeah, the the answer to your question is use the guide that you found. If you don't have one, I will uh, just write back to me. In fact, I'll tell you what, I'll throw one in the show notes. Uh, The guide that I used to set up C file, we'll put that in the show notes and you'll have access to it. It is written from the perspective of the way that we set C file up for other people, which 99.9999999% of the time is either on a digital ocean droplet or on a server that's running on the internet for them, but it can it's absolutely possible, and there's nothing preventing you from, and it is specifically designed to be able to be run on a LAN. And so you should totally consider that. Now, something else you should consider. Linuxdelta.com. Linux Delta is the new resource for the Linux community to talk about distros. And I have fallen in love with Kubuntu because it fits a very certain uh, need set that I have, and I am able to outline that and exemplify why Kubuntu is the best operating system for me. Now, that may not be true for you, depending on what your workflow is, depending on what your needs are, depending on what your expectations are, depending on what your tolerance for failure is. Kubuntu may not be the right choice for you. And so what Linux Delta allows people to do is for me as a Kubuntu advocate to be able to go onto the Kubuntu page and write a review of, hey, this is why I think Kubuntu is the best operating system for a desktop user, period. And I will defend that argument to the best of my ability. And you can go and read my reasons of why I prefer Kubuntu and the things that I do with it and the reasons that I chose to use it. And then you can go read On the GNOME page, why somebody thought that was a better distribution, and to me, that's a far better way for users to ascertain information uh, to the benefits and um, detractors of any given operating system or any given software, as opposed to me just coming on here and saying, "I tried to install uh, Gentoo and it sucked, and so nobody should use Gentoo because I don't really know how to use Gentoo." You know, just that—that's not an effective way to review something. It's not an effective way to establish. A this is a this is a good tool for this job or a bad tool for the job because I don't I I went into it not believing it was a good tool for the job, and so I got what I expected. What you really want is you want somebody like Jeremy Sands who uses Gentoo every single day on every single machine for every single thing he does to come tell you why Gentoo is the best distribution. And that's what Linux Delta does. It lets the Jeremy Sands come and tell you about Gentoo, and it lets the Noah Chalaya come and tell you about Kubuntu, and then you can read that stuff, and you can decide. Which one fits you better? Das Geek incorrectly points out that Arch is a better distribution than Kubuntu. And so Das Geek has made a choice to use an inferior distribution and we should all support uh, his delusion in Arch. But you can understand why. And maybe you would also like to partake in his delusion rather than using the clearly superior distro, which is Kubuntu. (laughs) Hey, If you want more information, if you want to find out more about the show, if you want to find ways to interact with the show and get to all of the articles and references that we didn't cover because we just don't have time to get through everything we planned, you can do that at podcast.asknoahshow.com. You can also go back and listen to any episode we've ever done on demand. It's downloadable. It's shareable. Go do that. And we'll see you back next week at Tuesday, 6 p.m. Central. Have a good week.